or a little bit framing to talk not just uh, briefly about the entire book project as a whole that I have on Nechung, but about the process of it, which uh, in my experience has always been, and I think in a lot of people's experience, very obscure. Uh, it's not something that you really know about until you're in it, and you can kind of feel like a deer in the headlights when that happens. There's just something about academia in a lot of cases where this information is sort of esoteric uh, until the time comes. And so I wanted to talk first a little bit about how I even came upon this project, uh, which was my dissertation uh, back in 2013, almost 10 years ago. And then now I'm in the thick of converting it into a manuscript for Oxford University Press. I'm in the kind of final stages of that. Uh, so it's really on the top of my head right now uh, for doing this. Um, it was a little bit inspired, actually, I should say, by uh, Rachel and Anna's work on kind of the oral history of Tibetan studies, right? This is something that hasn't, not a lot of people have peeked behind the curtain of uh, until recently. So I'm hoping that through this sort of impromptu conversation, uh, a little bit of vulnerability uh, will show through of kind of the failures that we all have experienced um, to some point, as well as the successes. Um, and even though mine are particular to me, hopefully many of you will be able to uh, relate to some degree. So I should first off start saying that the title is maybe a little bit of a misnomer, uh, writing about the Neichung Oracle. Maybe I should have just simplified it and said writing about Neichung uh, as a whole, because most of the book project is really about Neichung as an institution. Um, and I split it up between three major lenses that I felt were fairly helpful in trying to make sense of all that. By the way, this mural, uh, and most of the images in these slides are going to be from Nechung Monastery outside of Lhasa, unless otherwise said. This one in particular is of the Nechung Oracle at the end of the 17th century named, uh, named uh, Lobsan Lechor. Um, anyway, to kind of start this framing with the background for how we even got on this, when I was going into my dissertation, uh, the original focus of it was on the cult of Pehar as a whole, not the deity Pehar across Tibet, synchronically and diachronically. I wanted to visit all these monasteries in Utsang and Kham and Amdo. And if any of you are balking at that, uh, it's for very good reason. It's way too broad. Uh, the biggest criticism I got finally when I started trimming it down was that this is like a 10 volume project or at least a 10 year project. There's no way that a year or so of dissertation work is going to be able to encompass that. So I applied for the Fulbright Scholarship and I was declined. Um, and that was hard. That was tough. It's a very competitive thing, as we all know. But it doesn't take away that feeling of like, well, now what am I going to do? I have this huge project in mind. How am I going to get over it? So, sorry? Oh. Um, after some really good advice um, from my mentors, especially Curtis Schaefer and uh, David, uh, David Germano, um, they advised me to contract my focus to just Nechung. Like if, if Nechung is kind of this linchpin for the cult of Pehar, sort of across Tibetan history, it would be a great thing to maybe just contract my focus to that, just give that attention. And believe me, it was more than enough, uh, as we'll see trying to even condense all that just for, you know, a 30 minute talk or so is, is going to be a bit tough. <laughs> um, so they advised me to contract my focus to just Nechung, try to look at all the strands of that. 
and really thanks to David Germano, I was offered a, a teaching opportunity in Hong Kong for that next year. And that allowed me, because of the uh, both the funds that it produced and the location, a lot of very fruitful trips uh, to Hlasa and Dharamshala between 2010 and 2012. That was when my field work really took place. Um, and it was, uh, it was a lot easier back then uh, than it was several years later. Uh, by contrast, when I went back after my dissertation in 2014 to Hlasa specifically, I could only go for two weeks instead of six months. Uh, and a lot of the sites that I wanted to visit or photograph uh, were no longer open for that. Photo photography was very, very limited. So as we're all very well aware when it comes to going into Tibet, it's, uh, it's unpredictable uh, and you just have to work with what you have. So I was very fortunate for the time that I did have there from 2010 to 2012. I, I was really able to get the bulk of the research I needed done uh, and even was able to collect material I wasn't anticipating uh, at all. Some material I'm still going through, in fact, uh, that I hope to kind of look into in greater depth for future work. Uh, so I, I've got plenty of friends, I'm not going to name names, who have had very unfortunate experiences trying to do field work over there and just something not working out, a crucial meeting not happening. Uh, so I felt incredibly fortunate for that. Um, and again, I, I really do want to highlight just the number of advisors and other researchers that are just so crucial in this process. I mean, you just, you can't predict what help uh, you might need or, or really rely on. Um, so of course, Curtis and David, I already mentioned, my first mentor, uh, Brian Cuevas, was a huge help. Uh, major scholars in Tibet, like Pema Namgyal, Tsering Gyalbo, Pu Jung at the Tibetan Academy of Social Sciences in Lhasa were just incredibly helpful. Uh, and I really wouldn't have been able to get the material that I needed uh, without their help. So I think we're acknowledgments and books are where you kind of put this stuff, but I, I think it deserves more attention because the work wouldn't even happen without a lot of these individuals. All right. So what was the end result uh, of the process of dissertating? Well, my methodology was predominantly historical and textual. I was looking through uh, textual texts, obviously, through biographies, through ritual texts, through various histories. And then because I was over there a fair amount and was able to interview uh, some important individuals at these various institutions and monasteries, uh, ethnographic elements, I was able to kind of seep in here and there, which I felt really kind of cohered uh, my observations. Um, the basic structure, like anything, is introduction, conclusion, and then these three really big chapters that ended up uh, being divided through those three lenses that I explored Nechum with. The mythology, looking at Pehar's kind of mythos, um, and I don't mean to use that word to mean um, falsehood or fiction, but rather these very powerful narratives of identity. Um, second chapter was on the ritual corpus, looking at the Nechum Gongso, uh, and all the central rights pertaining to that. And then the third and final chapter was on Nature's institutional development and other institutions associated with it, which I'll get into. Um, and then the other half of the dissertation as a whole uh, were four appendices. Uh, outline of the major liturgical corpus of Nature, the three central rights, which I'll talk briefly about, uh, the Nature record, which I'll also talk about, um, uh, Nature. Uh, Karchak, 
and then the uh, hagiography of uh, this figure, Jokpa Changjupinden. I had an incomplete translation at that point. So after all was said and done, and I was kind of ready to move on to the next professional side of things uh, at Stetson, I didn't want to look at it for a while. I think we could all uh, relate to that feeling. I kind of wanted to just put it away for a couple of years. Um, and because where I am is a liberal arts university, that I couldn't almost help but do that um, with my three classes to teach a semester, department colloquium, student advisees and thesis advisees. There, for the first couple of years of curriculum development and service work uh, at the university, you almost don't have any time uh, to look at your research or to expand on it for a good two or three years. Um, and th that service side of things uh, in the academy was always a mystery to me until I got out of grad school. So the research aspect, the teaching aspect, I built on those during grad school, but it, it really was the service work, the expectations and committees that was a big surprise, not always pleasant <laughs> when it came to actually getting into the professorate. All right. So, um, the nature work that's in the title of this talk, again, is kind of just a, a point of focus. Um, I see him as almost the office of the nature oracle as almost this embodiment of those major elements of the mythic, of the ritual, of the institutional, right? And, and together, um, he, they all precede and define nature in these really fascinating networks that even extend beyond it. And I'll have a couple of examples of that. So in looking at all this, I don't think it's a big surprise to anyone, but the history of the nature oracle is intimately linked with the Dalai Lamas, uh, and especially in all these three ways. And I'll have some examples because I'm basically summarizing the entire project. I can't go into too much depth. We can save that for discussion, but I can give you kind of the overarching uh, outline. Um, in terms of my inspiration for sort of theoretical framing of this material, I was really inspired by a lot of the work that came out of Chinese religious studies. There's some really good stuff in um, Indian and Japanese religious studies as well, but some of these major works like Richard von Glan's Sinister Way, Robert Heim's Way and Byway, Paul Katz's Demon Hordes and Burning Boats, I just reread that in fact, all really were great inspirations for trying to make sense of Tibetan deity cults, right? And deity cults in the Tibetan milieu. Uh, because there's, there's not a lot of works really you can point to uh, that do what they do, in the, but in the Tibetan context, there's a lot in Chinese religious studies. Um, so there's a lot of good inspiration there. Uh, the growth of Wutong's cult, uh, the growth of the three lords and martial winds. It's, it's really Himes' question of why these deities and not others that kind of became the foundation uh, for this project. Why Pehar? Uh, there are a lot of other deities, obviously, we're all very aware of that. Um, Amy Heller's work on Bexe was an incredible inspiration in the Tibetan context. Uh, and, and of course, Nebeski Boykovitz before, but this, this question of why more Pehar? I mean, he's, he and Pendant Lama Maxo Gyalmo are the two big protectors of the Dalai, Lama lineage, Dalai Lama's lineage. So why was that? I just wanted to try to understand this kind of growth and importance. And, uh, and Robert Heim's question there, Paul Katz's work on cogeneration and reverberation were really inspirational in that. He, in turn, was actually drawing off of Prasanjit Duara's work 
on Guan Yi and his notion of superscription. So all of that was really, really, I thought, powerful uh, for inspiration. By the way, this is another mural of the Neqing Oracle, this time uh, a figure from the late 19th century named Shaka Yarpel. It was a very uh, impactful oracle figure. All right, so what about sources? Well, there's a lot, obviously. Uh, these are just the major sources, the ones that I kept turning to again and again and again for various reasons, and I have them just listed out here. Um, obviously, the Pema Katang, there are two specific chapters in that, 63 and 104, that are particularly about Padmasambhava's encounter with Pehar and the assigning him to Samyang. Um, there's this text, I, I'm using very short names just to save time, so I just call it simply the Symphony of the Captivating Gods. Uh, this is a Samye history composed by Ameshap in the early 17th century, incredibly useful. He quotes quite extensively from some very valuable texts, so I returned to that again and again and even wrote up a very kind of basic uh, index for that history as a whole. It's almost complete. Uh, the Nature Record, the Nature Karchak. This is this is the work. If anyone's really familiar with uh, Nature Monastery outside of Lhasa, this is actually the Karchak that's inscribed on the southern wall of the courtyard there in Nature. And so it had already been transcribed once before uh, by this uh, really incredible Tibetan scholar in the '80s named Lingwen Pema Kesang. But this, uh, this work has a lot of great material. It's half the Fit Dalai Lama's own writings. It's half Sangha Gyatso's. Uh, it's been there presumably since 1682 or a little bit thereafter. Uh, and then this other really incredible but very difficult work uh, and, and Per, uh, per Sorensen and I have talked about this, uh, the hagiography of Chokpa Changpa Pinden. It was really thanks to, um, Tsering Gyobo, you know, the irreplaceable Tsering Gyobo at, uh, at TAS in Lhasa that provided me a copy of this work, so I was very grateful to him for that. Uh, and then also these really great murals, murals on uh, at Tsangpa Chapel at Medusapra Monastery in Lhasa. That was also thanks to a fellow scholar there named Mikmar Tsering, who pointed those out to me when I was doing my research, and it, they were just a wealth of information. The image in the top right is an example of that in the top bottom is the Nature record at, at Nature. And I was just floored by the material that these sources had. And just to kind of help round things out, even if it is a bit, about 50 years later, uh, Leilung Shepe Dorje's Tamjin uh, Tensun Katsu is just unparalleled. And he does a really good job generally of citing his sources. Um, great bibliographic references there. And then this very modern source, uh, but I think a very powerful um, reference for oral information and some good textual citations as well is the history of Nechum, this Nechum uh, Chujung that was composed uh, by Venerable Tukten Ponsok at Nechum uh, and Dharamshala. And it was published in 2007. Now you might notice on top there, I have this sort of uh, title that's kind of a shadow over the other text, and that is this right white crystal rosary, the Sheldrank Arpo. A lot of the texts uh, that I just listed either cite fairly extensively or at least note this source, clearly a very foundational source for understanding Pehar, and it exists. It's, it's still extents, unlike a lot of the other ones listed in these works, uh, but the thing is it's not available to the uninitiated 
which I am. <laughs> I am not initiated. So I uh, was very graciously given a viewing of the introduction and the colophon of this work by monks at both Nechungs, the Nechung and Hasa and Ndasa, um, but wasn't able to see the whole thing. So I, I had to kind of pick what I could of fragments from other sources. Okay. Uh, so getting kind of, that, that's all very introductory, getting to the three major aspects of sort of teasing out Nechung's significance. The first, of course, is Pehar's mythos. And again, I mean this in this broader sense of these powerful narratives uh, that are used by different communities, that are, that are promoted by different communities. And that will, of course, include the Fifth Dalai Lama and his administration as well. Uh, the term that I use to translate the common label for the group of deities that Pehar heads, is, as, which is the Gyopokonga, I called in my dissertation the five sovereign spirits. I was really trying to figure out better ways of, of naming the different kinds of uh, really the dizzying array of spirit types that you find uh, in, in Tibetan uh, belief and practice, right? All the, the Ten and the Gyopo and the Mu and the Nijin. And how do we label those? Can't always use the Sanskrit. There's not really good English alternatives. So I, I did my best and tried for that. And that was my example for Gyopo. I translate as sovereign spirits given their history. Um, some of the mythic accounts, uh, really, though, most of them actually only focus on Pehar. So that's the fascinating thing. You see in the ritual context, the five sovereign spirits all the time. You see them uh, crop up in the major ritual uh, texts. But in the mythic accounts, it's really only Pehar. Now, the caveat to that is that um, some of the names of the sovereign spirits and their ministers crop up as alternatives or variant names for Pehar, especially Xingjichen which I find very fascinating. Um, but for the most part, it's only really Pehar that's, that's the main central figure in a lot of these mythic variations. Uh, and one thing I also found, and this is something that uh, my good friend, uh, who, who was also at Oxford, Cameron Bailey, has really been teasing out in his work, which is that certainly Pehar, but um, he sees in a lot of the Tibetan protector deity narratives that, that mythic kernel of Rudra, right, the great, the great demon Rudra in the uh, Gathering of Intentions Sutra that um, Jacob Dalton worked on, that that narrative, narrative strand rather is, is really found permeating through a lot of the mythos of different protector deities. Definitely the case for Pehar, potentially even more so. Uh, it's definitely in the narratives associated with Pehar before his arrival in Tibet. But beyond that, even in terms of his appearance, He's got the three heads of the three different colors. He's got the six arms. There's this lifetime after lifetime of getting meaner and meaner and getting just more angry uh, and ruthless and destructive and dangerous, powerful and wrathful all over time. So Pehar's mythos is really drawing from clearly Rudra as a kernel, including that very uh, fundamental moment of two devotees learning under their teacher and one understands the teacher and the other one doesn't. And you see that kind of, that kind of story going all the way back to the Chandogya Upanishad, right? When Indra and Virochana try to learn under Prajapati. So, so seeing these reverberative strands of, of mythology through the eons is, is really fascinating. 
when it comes to the fifth Dalai Lama's sort of master narrative, though, what you might call Nature's charter myth, uh, he really lays it out fairly cleanly, I would say, in that you have this moment before Tibet where Pehar in his previous form was this very devout king. He has a minister, uh, Lekton Nakbo, right? that name's already significant, and they both go under the same master. But of course, Lekton Nakbo understands things. He, he understands the meat of the material and Pehar in this former form as a, as a king does not. And his vows degenerate. He ends up sleeping with a Brahmin woman at one point. He gets chastised for it. And over numerous lifetimes, he keeps attacking Lekting Nakbo, whose, uh, whose ordination name was Dunting Nakbo. And that's, that's what's happening in the upper right picture. You have this very lovely compression of events where you have Pehar in this previous form attacking, attacking Lekting Nakbo as a scorpion, as a giant scorpion, and then on the right bowing to him when he gets subdued. Uh, in these stories especially, it's Vajrapani who keeps coming back again and again and again and just you know, knocking, knocking Pehar down a peg as he keeps taking on these different forms to try to attack Lekton Nakbo. He takes the form of a lion, of a marmot, of a boar, right? all these different ways of trying to get at his former friend, now enemy. And eventually he gets, uh, especially with Vajrapani's help, at what point Lekton Nakbo himself subdues him by uh, embodying Hayagriva. That's important, obviously. Uh, and then he arrives in Tibet and he gets subdued by Padmasambhava. A lot of this material is found in the chronicle of Padmasambhava in the Pimakatang. Um, and involves, especially from the Fifth Dalai Lama's material in his autobiography and in his other writings, like the Song of the Spring Queen, it involves this other kind of mysterious figure named Dharmapala. Now this name gets confused in some sources as just a reference to Pehar, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to have been this person uh, with close ties to Pehar who was from Zahor and has this relationship with the Choge lineage of the Fifth Dalai Lama. And I think that's gonna be very significant later down the line. So Pehar comes in, he's assigned a protector of Samye, um, and then eventually he moves on to Natrum. There's a lot of different mythologies surrounding that, a lot of variant stories, Nebeski Vojkovits especially really talks about that in his chapter on Pehar. But the one that I note the most is what's found in the hagiography of Chokpachanja Pindan, that Pehar angered uh, the Tsel Miriarchy. He's thrown into the Kichu River and then eventually picked up by the assistance of Chokpachanja Pindan. Now, the very popular oral account is that the assistant brings the box up to Drepung. It gets heavier and heavier, and the curiosity of the assistant overwhelms him, and he opens it. Pehar comes out uh, in the form of a white bird and absorbs into the nearby tree. And that's the tree at the center, or was historically at the center of Nature Monastery. In the hagiography of Changchu Pindan, you don't see any of that. It's rather this very prolonged dialogue between what appears to be a possessed figure, what appears to be sort of the pro protean, uh, or really the um, earlier form of the Nature Oracle, having these conversations with the assistants with Chokpachanju Pindam and agreeing to protect uh, Drepung as long as he's giving a, given a small place, right, Nature, where his possessions can be held. So that whole narrative is really, really quite fascinating. 
Um, the rest of that chapter is just all the dizzying variations on his names, on the different characters and the stories, on the different plots. And each one of them, uh, the examples I used, because you can use so many, it could take up its own book. The examples I used are actually from the same sources that the Fitha Lama was clearly familiar with. And each one of them maybe emphasizes Pehar's Buddhist's character or his Mongolian character or his Tibetan mythic pedigree. But the Fifth Dalai Lama's narrative, or at least the Nature narrative, seems to my mind to emphasize all three quite equally in order to create, to attempt to create this coherent narrative uh, in his own writings. The Fifth Dalai Lama clearly struggles with trying to understand some of the contradictions in these accounts and, and has tried to um, make something more singular, more standard. Uh, and then there's even a, an interesting point where the Nature record, specifically Sangye Gyatso's part, explains the five sovereign spirits as emanations of the five Buddha families. So that divide between Jitenle Tepe Suma and Jitenpe Suma is a little bit blurry there, well, which I find fascinating. All right. So getting into the ritual accretion, um, Really, and I'll try to kind of zoom through this a little bit more, I wanted to go through a, with a concentric approach. I wanted to look at Nechung's ritual calendar as a whole, and then specifically the Nechung Kongso, that whole collection of works, and then finally the three texts uh, that are really the two texts, I should say, that are at the heart of the Nechung Kongso. So when looking at the ritual calendar, it's admittedly a very dry part of that chapter, uh, really just translating from uh, Tukten Punsok's history, it shows Nechung's involvement with festivals like Losar, like the Munlam Chimmo, Zaming Chisong, with major institutions like Samye, Drepung, Meru, Ningba, Tse Gungtang. So it's still, still this relationship with Tse, that area southeast of Lhasa. Uh, and with these various uh, accretive elements that get added on. This major tertian named Lerap Lingpa at the end of the 19th century has some major involvement with Nechung uh, through the 13th Dalai Lama. So these are materials that get added to uh, Nechung's ritual corpus and activities um, over the centuries. And then looking at the Nechung Kongso itself, uh, first of all, there, there's two editions. There's a three-volume edition, actually, that has even more text going all the way up to modern times. But I think the core edition is this 42 text compilation from 1845 uh, that was even compiled at the request of the Nichung Oracle at that time. 22 of those texts were by a Dalai Lama, usually the fifth or the seventh. Um, and then 17 were either composed or requested by a Nichung Oracle. So that's the vast majority of them right there. The handful of other texts are either by Sangye Gyatso or Penchen, uh, Ngari Penchen. You have the fourth pension lama, Teradak Lingpa, and Leilung having a text in there, and of course, one text by Nangar Lima Osir, but that's in some ways the most important one in the collection, or at least one of the two. Because what you have, and this was a struggle to try to visually represent this, because I find it so cool, frankly, is um, in transcribing these three rituals, seeing over time this evolution, or, or I should stick with accretion, or even reverberation of this ritual material, going all the way back to this text by Nangran Lima Osir, or rediscovered rather, treasure text rediscovered by him, called the 10 chapter sadhana. 
Uh, and then that text being used first, actually, by the second Dalai Lama uh, in some of his offerings. He has a collection of offerings and praises dedicated to multiple deities. And in the uh, six or so texts in that collection dedicated to the uh, Gyalpo Kunga, you have um, these excerpts from the 10 chapter sadhana. And then this very important central rite uh, in the Nature Liturgy, the Adamantine Melody, Dorje Jayanga, composed by the Fifth Dalai Lama around 1650, give or take a decade. Um, and that has all of those elements. In fact, I, I suspect that the name that Nature takes on under its renovation in 1682 by the Fifth Dalai Lama and Sangye Gyatso is drawn from this rite, Dorje Jayang Ling. So this image on the right, you're not supposed to be able to read it. It's just too, it's too, too much. Uh, but hopefully the colors stand out uh, because what you really find is that that little kernel of blue texts, which actually describe the five sovereign spirits, that is in all three texts. That originates in the 10 chapter sadhana. You see it permeating the offerings and praises and then eventually finding its way in the adamantine melody. And then... Uh, the Fifth Dalai Lama builds on that by adding even more material from the 10 chapter sadhana, and that's what the red text is in this excerpt. And then there's also orange text that is from the offerings and praises, so the Fifth Dalai Lama was clearly drawing from that as well. Uh, and then finally the black text is all this expansive edition by the Fifth Dalai Lama. So we have the Dalai Lama over lifetimes, right? He's certainly the incarnation of the second. He's believed uh, and touted by Tsongkhe Gyatso to be an incarnation of Nima Oser, you have this, this accretion, this composing, or this rediscovery of a text over centuries of lifetimes, which I find so fascinating in this, this history of ritual uh, development. Uh, and then the Nature Oracle, as we see, has also been very actively promoting the growth of his own cult, the growth of the Nature cult at that site. So the monastery itself, the institution itself, I'll kind of finish up with these and then uh, move on to turning it into a book somehow. Um, the, the gist is, this is a great picture, by the way, that Tasha Komet uh, was kind enough to, to send to me. You can see the tree there that Pehar supposedly you know, flew into right there in the middle of the courtyard. Um, you have two major elements. You have the history of the monastery itself, and you have the architecture, which I find just as, if not even more compelling. Um, there are three major elements in Neichung's history. You have these, this kind of mythos surrounding this shrine called Yoloke that was established by Munet Simpo at Padmasambhava's prophetic requests. Padmasambhava supposedly said, oh, this is where Pehar's soul tree um, and soul lake are at. So make sure to put a, a shrine here. And then a statue of Tara was brought from Samye, which was the Ne Chen to this Ne Chung. So that's one sort of etiology for the name. And then we have the Nichung Chapel established uh, in Jokpa Chancho Pindan's time, possibly 1529, maybe 1469. There's a little bit of issues with the dates there. And then finally, this uh, renovation and expansion uh, under the Fifth Dalai Lama and his regents, not just Sangye Gyatso, but mostly him uh, in the late 17th century. But the architecture, I, when I was there, I couldn't help but go to Nichung as often as I could, even if it meant paying the 10 kwai for the ticket every single time. Um, but I, I found Martin Mills's work on these axes of spiritual power uh, to be very fruitful 
in understanding the architecture because it is just, and the murals right the imagery the iconography is just so impactful you go into the courtyard and the walls are covered in these amazing murals of hundreds of pehar's retinue it's kind of like you're walking into a military encampment to see the leader you go into the assembly hall and you see this slow axis of movement from the impure worldly entrance to the pure transcendent back and up of that space. So you have oracles represented on the murals on both sides of the door. You have the five sovereign spirits kind of in tandem with each other. You have the eight sadhana deities, as I call them, the Drupakagye further in. And then finally, you have right at the end of those murals on both sides, Padmasambhava on one side, Hayagriva on the other. And then you get into the central chapel. You have statues now of the five sovereign spirits. Again, goddesses like Dorje Yundruma, um, and then Hayagriva at the very back center. And then right in the middle of that room is a statue of the ancient oracle. And then what has been built since then behind even that space, you have to go to the second floor to see it, is this two-story statue of Padmasambhava. So he's sort of overlooking everything, right, as this grand second Buddha would and tamer. And, and from there, you have the ancient monasteries that have been established uh, past that. So what I found very fascinating is it seems from the late 7th century onward, and there's some nuanced discussion about what the extent of the influence was. Was it hegemonic? Was it something more organic or local? I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. But you have Nature's influence one way or the other uh, spreading to these institutions in Lhasa, and certainly from, from there on out into Tibet from the 17th century onward. Seyangun, southeast, still has this major cult to uh, the five sovereign, uh, five sovereign spirits. They have the same ritual manuals, more or less, that are used, including one really fascinating one that I still haven't been able to dig into. Dayong College at Drepung, major murals dedicated to them, major rituals still, and a lovely chapel, the Peharchok, on the ceiling of Dayong College to this day. Medo Ningba Monastery, right behind the Chokong, is where Nechu monks stay and recite rituals from the Dunjima, from the Ten Chapter Satna and other Nechu liturgies uh, on a regular basis. I observed a number of those when I was there. And obviously the murals as well and the history there of the Nechu oracle staying there. Uh, Gadong Monastery, right around the mountain from uh, Drepung. Uh, that deity is Shinjichen, right? It, it's, it's one of the five sovereign spirits. And of course, that's who the oracle, the Gadong oracle is possessed by. Karmasha Chapel, there's maybe some discussion here because Karmasha is associated with Sarah, right? It's under Sarah. But the main deity of Karmasha is um, um, Sering, I'm sorry, it's Chinjikbu, uh, who is uh, the minister of Munbaputra, one of the five sovereign spirits. And then a monk told me at Sarah May College uh, that Taok Chokyel of, of May College, the protector there, is actually a form of uh, Chenjikbu. So you have these really fascinating networks of deities related to the five sovereign spirits, even going all the way through there. Banakshol Chapel, it's right there in the parkour. Also, Shinjichen seems to be tied to Gadong Monastery. And then even outside, of the plateau. You have Nature Monastery being reestablished as this picture shows in Dharmashala. It's, it's really just a walk down from the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives, right, right past the Nature Cafe, wonderfully named, 
uh, and that was completed in the mid-1980s, there was actually a Hawaii center built first, established first in 1973, and that's still there on the big island of Hawaii. And, and what these institutions, first, the ones in Tibet really do show this further reverberation or kind of um, emanation, radiation of this influence, both ritually and iconographically um, in Lhasa and beyond. But because of current history, you also see this splitting happening between the institutions. Lhasa still has these amazing sacred sites. It has the tree, even if it's now uh, cut up and in one of the shrine rooms. It has the stone that the box was supposedly put on where Pehar flew out of, uh, but you don't have that in exile. Uh, but you do have the sacred persons, right? That's the, the, the Dalai Lama and the Nichung Oracle are now residing there in Dharamshala in exile and performing these various ritual practices. Um, and that ends us, brings us back to the Nichung Oracle, uh, Tupin Punsok. His history really provides a good detail of this. I'm going to kind of breeze through this because I, I know I'm running out of time. We have 17 known oracles. The earliest dated reference I could find specifically to an ancient oracle was at the death of the second Dalai Lama uh, in 1542. You have the third Dalai Lama uh, being encouraged by the ancient oracle uh, to accept the invitation by Alton Khan. That's actually in the Jewel Translucent Sutra that Johann Elverskog translated. And then past that, you have the fifth Dalai Lama in his biographies of previous Dalai Lamas, like the third and the fourth, and in his writings that you see this noticeable increase in Pehar's presence and the nature of Oracle's presence. There's even this fun story of Pehar being assigned, uh, really the, the black and the red deity that Amy Heller has written about, being assigned to protect the Dalai Lama lineage in the intermediate state uh, between the second and the third reincarnation's birth, or the second's death and the third's rebirth. So we have this activity really dramatically increasing uh, in the fifth Dalai Lama's time in writings. Um, and I, I don't think I'll talk about the selection too much or the Tibetan Monkey Festival, unfortunately. If you have questions about it, I'll talk about it in discussion, but I, I know I need to move forward. Um, final observations. What was basically my conclusion before I then talk about the book process for a couple of slides? Is to me, it seems that Pehar was chosen above others in these certain contexts, in part because of these numerous connections that he shared with the fifth Dalai Lama. You had an ancestral connection because of the Zahora line and Dharmapala. You had a transmissional connection because of all these texts uh, that the Fidai Lama was um, initiated in, all these Nyingma treasure texts, like Nangar Lima Ozer especially. Incarnational connections over lifetimes, Second Dalai Lama, Nangar Lima Ozer, even going back to Padmasambhava and Trisun Detson. Institutional connections, especially with the close ties to Drepung, and Mongolian connections, which were especially pertinent at that time, given this burgeoning relationship with Gushri Khan. So, so to me, Nature Monastery and Nature Oracle were part of this larger uh, activity on the Fifth Dalai Lama's administration's part to consolidate at this time. It was part of this ritual consolidation effort that was, uh, that was really ramping up. Um, and you see that also in Pehar's strengthening links uh, to Tibet's imperial past. With the Fifth Dalai Lama being perceived as this reincarnation of these imperial figures, Sangye Gyatso as well, Terdak Lingpa, um, I didn't get to talk too much about him, but he's considered a reincarnation of the Lotawa of Arochana. All these other institutional figures are almost embodying the imperial age in the 17th century. Um, 
and all these extensive networks are just reinforcing that nascent government because its power was not a foregone conclusion as work already on the 17th century has shown. And I feel like this activity was part of that larger, uh, larger effort to aid in and maintain the government's legitimation. So that was the dissertation. And you can maybe understand why I wanted to leave it alone for a while. <laughs> and that was just uh, a long-winded summary to, to say the least. In terms of seeking a publisher, when I was ready, the advice I was given was look for publishers, uh, university publishers, university presses. That's really what you want to go for. Yeah, and I can only speak from the American context. But you want to look for publishers whose catalog contains books that accord with your own thematically and topically. Um, and if you have friends who have worked with those publishers, give them a, give them a, a call, contact them, email them, ask them for any advice on how they made their first contact. They might even put in a good word for you. I have a couple of good friends and colleagues do that. I was very grateful uh, when I tried Columbia University Press first, Sarah Jacoby and, um, um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of blanking on the names all of a sudden. Sarah Jacoby and uh, David DiValerio uh, were very kind. Oh, I'm sorry, Jeff Barstow, sorry. We're very kind to offer me advice. Sarah Jacoby and Jeff Barstow are very kind to offer me advice and even put in a good word for me. You want to try to make the claim that your book kind of accords with what they've published. So I made, I made arguments for Sarah's book on love and liberation, Justin McDaniel's book on Thai Buddhism, Love, War, and Ghost and the Magical Monk, Peter Schweiger's book on the Dalai Lama and the Emperor of China. So all of this, uh, I made a, a case. Unfortunately, it was right that time, it was about a year, about a year and a half ago, this was in the summer of 2018, when I first did this, it's a long process. Um, but unfortunately, their series that did the funding ran out. And the only option they gave me was subvention. This was a word I had not heard before, uh, but apparently it means seeking outside funding. And I wasn't able to get any, and so I had to, uh, they had to decline me. I tried Yale University next, also declined. I thought I made a fairly good case for Jacob Dalton for connecting with Taming of the Demons, dealing with a lot of the same things, but got declined. You just never know. And then finally, very grateful, Oxford University Press accepted. But this is not immediate. Um, they will want to ask for very specific information through a book proposal or a prospectus and a cover letter. And that will include information like a book title, a brief description, a fuller description, chapter outline, author info, the market. And this is the sticking point when it comes to trying to make this information accessible, uh, especially in the American market. The whole point of these books is to try to put them on the shelves in Barnes and Noble or on Amazon and try to sell them. So there's a real push to try to make them accessible to the general reader as well as valuable to the specialists. That's, that can be a very hard line to balance and I'm still struggling with it. Um, who also your competition might be. They don't want to publish a book that might already kind of already be out there or something along those lines. So you want to be mindful of your competition. And then the additional information or specs, the length of it, stage of completion, number of illustrations. If the manuscript is complete, that's really preferred because you already got something, but it's not always necessary. Sometimes sample chapters are what you need. So that could take a semester or more. It took a semester before Columbia got back to me to tell me that unfortunately you might want to look for other publishers. Yale took about a month beyond that. And it took about a year 
to get through this process with, with Oxford for good reason, right? I'm not saying any of this critically. I'm just telling you my experience um, that they would express interest. They might ask for changes first, and that could take some time. Initially, the draft that I had for them was 157,000 words. Didn't know it at the time, but apparently that's like 500 pages. So that's not something they want to spend a lot of money publishing paper for. So they wanted me to cut it down to around 110. I got it to 112 by cutting out all my appendices. And the two big ones, my translations of the Nature Record and Chopra Chunch Appendix Hagiography, I'd already published or were in the works to be published. So I could at least just cite those intertextually. And then they're sent off to a, two, two to three reviewers and given their schedules, right? They're busy with their own uh, research goals and, and work. They could take half a year or more to get back to you on what the reviewers say. If the reviewers liked it enough to agree, yes, right? These anonymous viewers say you should publish, but with major or minor revisions, then you write a response to the reviewers, right? Respond, a response to the re reviewers, to the publisher, agreeing that you're gonna make those changes. Um, and if they accept that, then you get the contract. So it took me about a year from December of 2018 to just this past December to get that contract signed. And with that sign is an understanding that the revision has a certain date in which it needs to be done. And the date for me is June 1st, so less than a month. <laughs> um, but I've already incorporated most of the revisions. I'm, I'm in the last stages of that. So finally, I mean, this is where I'm at. I'm, I'm revising. Uh, I spent the first, I've been on sabbatical this last semester, gratefully. I had just gotten tenure last spring at my university and now had this past semester on sabbatical to just focus on making those revisions, which were very encouraging. They were constructive, but they were encouraging. Mostly small changes, like change my language. I changed sovereign spirit, which I understand now is a bit clunky, king spirit. 10-point sadhana is maybe a bit more accurate translation of Dunjima, um, than, or Chinle Dunjima than 10-chapter sadhana. All these little things, walking back some of my bolder claims. Uh, and the biggest one was really splitting up my chapters a bit more to seven full ones, which I'd already done, and rearranging them. I just literally, I was talking with Guzan about this. I, I flipped my first and my second chapter uh, to talk first about the variant mythos to show reverberation. And then the second one now focuses on the fifth Dalai Lama's narrative to kind of show how that came about as the Nature Charter myth. So I'm still building on better reflecting and expanding my analysis um, through, through the book. And then, and then incorporating crucial appendices. You, I thought it was so easy to just cut out the appendices and then realized Oh wait, there's a lot of material I cited in those appendices that now no one can look at because they're not in the book anymore. So you can take that for granted. So now I have to bring in some of that material that was so pertinent from my appendices, kind of copy and paste them in. And then um, the last thing I'll say is this field work that I did in 2016 in Rewasar in Dharamshala was incredibly fruitful. That was the monkey festival that I just don't have too much, I don't have any time to talk about. But that ended up being a good chunk of my conclusion now. And I felt like it really rounded out um, the project as a whole. So your, your book at the end of the day is not your dissertation. It's, a, it's ideally a better version, a more consolidated and condensed version. You really have to ask yourself, what is the most important thing to say? And what can you just kind of put on the sidelines? And that can be a hard decision to make sometimes. But, but compiling all of that into something coherent, 
and solid, it takes time. It can take up to two years as this is. Um, the last thing I'm on, I'm still trying to figure out a title. Any suggestions are welcome. Um, one of the reviewers said that they like the second option, the Bodhisattva and the God. Um, I, I still have Brian Cuevas ringing in my head saying that a title without a colon is better. So I, I try to do that with the first option. And then there's a part of me that wants to just go big or go home and just have it called simply the Dalai Lama and the Nature Oracle. So I'm, I'm still kind of going back and forth on that. But yeah, that's my process. Thank <laughs> you.